everyone. Uh, welcome to One Great History. We're here with some exciting news to start off today before we get into the episode, and that's that One Great History is now on Patreon. Woohoo! Woohoo! So we can <laughs> actually get a little bit of money. This is a passion project for us. We don't make anything off of this, and in fact, we have to pay for streaming and research materials and stuff. So anything you can contribute is uh, awesome. We have two tiers. We've got a three dollar uh, a month only Snooks tier. <laughs> For those of you who can't get enough of uh, Ginger Snooks. And then we've also got a $5 a month tier, which is going to have bonus episodes and uh, also Ginger Snooks <laughs> clippings. <laughs> and Even if you're not a Patreon, I'll send you Ginger Snooks stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Just Ginger. ask Sabrina and she'll send you Ginger Snooks. But ideally, if you want to pay us, that would also be Oh, great. this will be unsolicited. <laughs> Ginger Snooks, for those that don't know, is Sabrina's favorite historical garbage man from Winnipeg. I did a whole like hour-long episode on him. And if okay. you pay us $10 a month, Sabrina won't send you Ginger Snooks. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> hey, that third one's a joke, but we really do have a Patreon. Uh, we'd love any support you could give us. So uh, yeah, to the episode. Hello and welcome to One Great History. Uh, I'm Alex. And I'm Sabrina. And this is the podcast where we talk about Winnipeg's great and not so great history. Um, so today we are talking about the vote. Um, Which vote? <laughs> you know, this could be any any election in the history of Manitoba. The vote. <laughs> this could go in so many directions. Well, this is going well so far. <laughs> Have you ever, Sabrina, have you ever um, run for anything? Did you ever like run for student council or anything? I did, yes. <laughs> um, it wasn't very exciting. I was student council president in Morris School. And then I think we both also ran unopposed for History Students Association president at yeah. various points. Yeah, I was uh, student council co-president in high school, which is a very cool title to hold. <laughs> Yeah, and so then we were both uh, HSA presidents, and do you remember, like, the first time you voted? Yeah, I was 18, it was the one thing I was looking forward to doing when I turned 18. That's funny, me too, because, um, yeah, I didn't drink when I turned 18, so it was, like, the one thing that changed for me. I had started drinking before I was 18. Yeah. <laughs> small town life, so I was like, I mean, I can legally buy liquor now, but that's not that exciting. No. <laughs> also... My dad's cousin owned the liquor store. Buying booze was just a matter of talking to my dad's cousin, Gloria. <laughs> so not the most exciting change. No, so voting was the real big perk. And I remember that before I turned 18, I was talking to my cousin's boyfriend and now husband about it. And we were both like, we can't wait. We're going to be <laughs> able to vote when we turn 18. It's such a big deal. <laughs> just so you know what we were all like as kids here. Yeah. So um, today we're talking about a time when neither Sabrina nor I would have been able to vote because uh, we're talking about women's suffrage and specifically um, an event in the history of women's suffrage, which is the 1914 mock parliament held in Winnipeg. And then after we talk about that, we're going to talk about Nellie McClung, who's kind of at the center of a lot of this. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Sabrina, since we'll mostly be in 1914 today, do you have a sense of who did have the vote at that time? Like, um, let's say federally. 
federally, okay, it would have been white Anglo-Saxon men who owned property. Yeah, you're you're very much spot on there. Like you didn't necessarily have to be white, but it helped. <laughs> I mean, you're probably more likely to have the capital to buy property. Yes. So we're talking about men who were British subjects, 21 years or older with property. Um, anyone who was excluded provincially could not vote federally. Um, so that's that's a little confusing. What that means is that um, in certain places, people from different like ethnic or national backgrounds weren't allowed to vote. So specifically, Chinese, Japanese, and certain South Asian nationalities couldn't vote in in Saskatchewan and BC, which meant that they also couldn't vote in federal elections. So they just couldn't vote. So they just couldn't vote. That's right. But then, okay, I have a. I don't think you can answer this question, but I need to ask it anyway. <laughs> okay. If they moved to like Toronto or Ontario, where they could vote, because they could they then vote provincially and federally and federally? Yeah, yeah. If they That's... became resident of a different province, it's very strange. Okay. Yeah. So that's a weird system. Um, anyone with Indian status under the Indian Act cannot vote. We should note that there are like quotation marks around Indian there. Obviously, that's a, a legal status and not a term we use anymore. Um, but First Nations people or men specifically could, in theory, give up their Indian status in order to vote. Um, it's like a pretty terrible decision to ask someone to make. Yeah. Um, there are a number of other exclusions that apply both federally and provincially. Um, people with intellectual disabilities couldn't vote. Prison inmates, um, different categories of government employees, so like people who worked for judges and things like that. Hmm. Anyone who was in an asylum. And of course, women. Yeah. Um, federally, you also needed about $150 worth of property. Um, but provincially, you did not need property. So we had actually, oh, interesting. yeah, so we had at one point, but by 1914, we had actually done away with that requirement. Okay. But we did have a reading requirement for about 10 years in the early 1900s. Oh, like, like a literacy test. Yeah, which is very strange. And those like, I mean, this is pretty obvious, but those often play out along like very kind of racist xenophobic lines, right? Well, yeah, that's, I think probably just a way to weed out new immigrants who don't speak English. Totally, right? I mean, if you can't pass an English literacy test it in 1914 in Winnipeg, it probably has very little to do with the fact that you can or can't read and a lot more to do with the fact that maybe you come from, like, Ukraine, right? So, yeah. Um, that being said, women could vote in municipal elections. So the province gave them the right to vote within their municipalities um, and they could vote for school trustees. Hmm. So that's seen as kind of being like a domain where I guess women have some say. Um, I guess that makes sense. If you look at like old school gender politics and like yeah. the school is where kids go and that's who women look after. Exactly. You sort of follow the logic. Yeah. But like what a boring thing to be able to vote for also. <laughs> Yeah, also what a confusing thing to have to keep track of. Like, I can vote in this and this, but not this. Yeah, and like, if I get this property, then I can, but also not, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so the right to vote, like, if you had it in theory, also didn't always play out in practice. So early voting was done orally, which obviously was very subject to intimidation. Oh, no. <laughs> Sabrina's Why? got her hand over her face. 
It's just a dumb system. It's a dumb system. And they had changed that by 1914. But uh, votes were often still purchased through like food or liquor. Um, Some priests told their parish that they would go to hell if they voted a certain way. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Um, Bosses intimidated their employees. There are a couple cases where bosses would like put up a sign in the employee uh, staff room saying like, if X government gets in, we're firing everyone. Wow. Um, so there's technically legislation against these things by 1914, but there wasn't any like overseeing elections regulatory body. So there hmm. wasn't actually any way to stop them. Um, now, interestingly, John A. McDonald at one point actually suggested giving the vote to widows and so-called spinsters who owned property. But that didn't really garner support uh, with his party. And it doesn't seem like he tried all that hard. But that would have been like, what, 20 to 30 years earlier at this point? Yeah, that would have been quite a bit earlier. Um, Yeah, it seems like maybe it's just like an idea he had and didn't care about that much. Yeah, okay. Um, Yeah, so just to talk about kind of early suffrage. um, Random fun fact, Canada's first suffragette group actually disguised itself as a book club. It was like a ladies literary society who actually met and like, you know, yelled about the vote. (laughs) That's fun. Yeah. Um, But Manitoba's first suffrage organization was actually an Icelandic women's group, which was founded in 1890. Okay. Yeah. So unfortunately, I don't know too much about them because I don't speak, I don't speak Icelandic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I can't look at those uh, sources, but that would be a cool thing to explore more at some point. Um, the women's Christian temperance movement, which we talked about quite a bit in our prohibition episode, is also formed around the same time. And they definitely make suffrage one of their like central causes. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of its founding members is Annie McClung. So huh. does that, yeah, any idea um, who that might be in relation to Nellie? I'm going to guess either a sister or a cousin. Not quite. That is her future mother-in-law. Oh, yeah. Interesting. It is interesting. So she like joins like a family dynasty of, of suffragettes. Hmm. Um, and the WCTU actually stages Manitoba's first mock parliament in 1893. Oh, that's way earlier than I thought. Yeah. But after that point, women's suffrage kind of fizzles for a little while. It's just also, like, what is a mock parliament? Just good question. So it's basically a parliament put on um, as like a play on stage for spectators. Um, and in the, the kind of tradition of suffragettes, it's done in a way where like women are in the parliament or in some cases just as a normal parliament, but they're like debating the issue of women's suffrage. Yeah. So, and it's normally um, comedic in tone, from my understanding. Normally, that that one in eighteen ninety three actually, I don't think was comedic. Oh, I think they were just like debating points on stage, which maybe that why that worse. one wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't all that significant, and I don't have too much to say about it. It doesn't sound too interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. So after ni- eighteen ninety three, there's kind of about like a ten year period where there's just like not a ton happening. Um, and even actually maybe more like 20 years. So in 1906, there's kind of like a brief uptick in interest because the province rescinds women's right to vote municipally. Um, Um, Yeah, and so a bunch of people get really mad about that. 
Um, but they actually um, reinstate that quite quickly, like within a year, and almost seem to act like it was a mistake somehow. Like, whoopsie, we terminated whoops. your voting rights. <laughs> whoops, we passed a, a discriminatory law. <laughs> it had to go through multiple steps and no one saw this coming. No, so it's a weird little blip. It doesn't last very long. They realize it's not popular. Um, and so one of the interesting things about women's suffrage in the prairies is that it actually didn't take that long between when women started like seriously campaigning for it and when it actually happened. Um, so part of that is that um, a lot of men in the prairies actually supported women's suffrage. Like it was a popular issue, not just among women. Um, so like women on the prairies were not like delicate shrinking violets. They weren't kind of, you know, Victorian ladies for the most part. They were like hardy farm women, right? Yeah. Who had worked hard to support their homes and their communities and to, you know, build build places up, and I think kind of demanded respect in that way. Um, and so one of the really unique things about women's suffrage here is that one of its earliest vocal supporters was the Grain Growers Association of Manitoba. Huh. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so from 1908, their Grain Growers Guide had a women's page, which often included things about suffrage. Oh, neat. Yeah, and in 1912, that page was actually given over to Frances Bainan. Oh, I saw a play about her once, actually. Yeah. Fighting Days at MTC. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so she is actually herself a pretty famous suffragette and will actually be involved in our mock parliament. Oh, exciting. Yeah, women's suffrage was also shaped by E. Cora Hind, who was... Um, who was also a journalist, actually, but a famous suffragette and a famous agriculturalist. So suffrage in, in Winnipeg or in Manitoba, like weirdly shaped by the grain trade. Interesting. Cora like Hind is really interesting, too, and in how popular she was as like a journalist of grain. Like she's the first female journalist in Western Canada. Yeah, she's super interesting. And I feel like all of this is probably very confusing if you're not from Manitoba. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, essentially what Cora Hind would do is just travel around looking at grain and going like, this is a good yield this year. <laughs> and Manitobans were like, yes, we love that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, based on her predictions, you could then invest in grain stocks or not. It would right. help set prices. Right. And I guess that could be like make or break for yeah. a lot of people in the prairies. But that also means that I guess like Hind had political clout behind her when she's arguing for women's right to vote too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, had the respect of, of a lot of people, both women and men. Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, in 1912, the Winnipeg Political Equality League is formed. And this is really the organization that kind of most successfully campaigns for women's suffrage in Manitoba. So the president was Dr. Mary Crawford, who you also may have heard of. She was one of Manitoba's first female physicians. Oh, cool. Yeah. And in 1914, uh, the Political Equality League decides that they are going to stage another mock parliament, kind of in the style of that one from 1893. Um, so, yeah, this was actually at this point a pretty common suffrage tactic. Um, Lillian Bainan Thomas, who is Francis Bainan's sister, had mm -hmm. recently been to Vancouver and had seen actually a pretty similar show to the one that they planned to put on. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it's 
it's one of these interesting things where this kind of activism gets like passed around between places. Yeah, it's weird because I don't know if I ever thought about the mock parliament as like a protest tactic, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like an event that happened here and not like a widespread thing that people were just doing. No, but it was like an established activist tactic, which apparently was fairly successful. I think it was like well-tuned to like what people wanted at that time. So tell me about this new mock parliament they're planning in Winnipeg. Okay, so... Um, it definitely, I think, feels like the time is ripe at this point, um, for something like this. Um, so there's a number of, like, female journalists and newspaper writers in Manitoba, so the suffragettes overall are getting, like, really good publicity. Um, and also T.C. Norris, so this is the leader of the opposition party of the liberals at this point, is planning to run against Premier Roblin, and he's planning on running under a suffrage ticket. So he actually begins pushing the Political Equality League to kind of make a move. Oh. Yeah. Um, he actually also invites them to the liberal convention where they say they are received respectfully. Okay. Um, so they begin planning this mock parliament and they decide that the day before they're going to make a delegation to um, to the provincial legislature um, to formally ask for the vote for women in Manitoba. So, and that goes over well. Oh yeah. yeah. Actually. Okay. Sabrina, I wish I could have been there so bad. This sounds like the (laughs) funnest session of parliament. (laughs) Oh boy. Tell me all about it. Okay. So Roblin is like ardently anti-women's suffrage and they know that going in, like they know he's not going to say yes to them. It's basically, yes. it's basically to get this in the papers so that people come the next night and listen. Yeah. So he claims that, that um, the suffrage campaign was only supported by short haired women and long haired men. <laughs> <laughs> like God forbid people have the wrong length hair. He sounds like a homophobic uncle on Facebook. <laughs> he does. Oh my God. This whole time he sounds like that, actually. Yeah. Um, so Nellie and a kind of delegation of suffragettes, um, and actually both men and women, go to the provincial legislature. The legislative building is packed with spectators wanting to oh. hear them, um, including the mayor. Mayor Deacon shows up. Um, so they've got a number of speakers lined up. The first is from the Icelandic Women's Suffrage Society. So they're still around. Um, this is a reverend named Dr. Martinson who says, women's influence in the home, church, society, and politics has always been for good. Pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, Mrs. Kelly of the Women's Christian Temperance Union speaks. She says that a mother's place is both in the home and out of it. And to the question of who will mind the baby when the mother goes to vote, she says, the same girl who minded the baby when the mother went to pay her taxes. (laughs) So (laughs) this is one of the things that I think we'll keep seeing is that like one of the big suffrage tactics, I think it's just being like funnier than the other side. Yeah. (laughs) Roblin doesn't sound very funny. No, I think that's not hard. He doesn't sound like a fun guy. Um, Mrs. Kelly also mentions that giving women the vote would help in suppressing the liquor traffic and the white slave traffic. Ah, you told me it wasn't going to come back to white slavery. (laughs) I didn't either. And then I had to. (laughs) I've written in my, I've written in my notes here, just sigh. 
<laughs> yeah, the idea, I fully agree that women should vote, but the idea that women voting will cure all social ills, including <laughs> made up ones. That seems to be like the WCTU's position on all things. Like we can cure all social ills just by like banning alcohol or letting if women, women vote, vote. Men won't drink anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. All bad things will stop and we will have no more war. <laughs> Interesting. Um, someone from the Grain Growers Association speaks uh, in favor of women's suffrage. And then um, Nellie McClung speaks last and gives kind of this um, really like compelling speech. She says, we are not asking for a reform, nor a gift, nor a favor. We are asking for our right, not for mercy, but for justice. Have we not brains to think, hands to work, hearts to feel, and lives to live? Do we not bear our part of citizenship? Uh, she also mentions the liquor traffic and white slavery. <laughs> always. It's always white slavery. <laughs> it's always white slavery, but we're, we're very concerned about white slavery right now. Um, which is funny because you'd think that people would notice if all these women had just been going missing. Yeah. But yeah, in case you didn't listen to an earlier episode, white slavery is the idea that young white women are being like trafficked by immigrants. Yeah. And it's not, it's not happening. It's a no. very silly thing and it's a huge moral panic. Yeah. So listen to our red light district for episode for more on that. Um, we can't, we can't do it again. <laughs> Anyway, Nellie McClung. Anyway, uh, she says, we women want to be governed by laws in which women have a voice in the making. How would you, Sir Rodman, like to be governed by laws made entirely by women? To which he responds, oh, I've got a splendid wife. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the old ball and chain. Yeah. So <laughs> McClung, McClung then turns to the audience and says, Sir Rodman had a splendid mother and he has a splendid wife. You are not afraid to trust the women, then are you, Sir Rodman? Uh, to which the audience laughs. Uh, she also says, I call you to witness if in the early days of our province, our pioneer women ever shrank from their duty. We, their descendants, now appeal to you, the Honorable, the First Minister of Manitoba, to give us our due. So they deliver the, these series of like solid, well-rehearsed speeches as well as they could. But it's a bit of a funny situation because um, as McClung says, uh, her quote is, what would be the fate of our play if Sir Rodmond were wise enough to give us a favorable reply? <laughs> so they're in this kind of weird position where they actually need him to say no. Yeah, that's, I mean, I guess it's a pretty fair gamble just knowing what Roblin was like as a person. Yeah, McClung says uh, she need not have feared and that he was at his foamy best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Roblin, of course, opposes uh, their, their request for women's suffrage. He begins first, though, by praising the delegation um, for their kind of, like, womanliness and their manners and whatever. They compliment their fine dress or something, <laughs> so, if I'm yeah, remembering this right. It's all kinds of gross patronizing stuff. Um, he says that what is necessary for national greatness was a perfect home. And he asks whether the fran having the franchise will lead to a better home, to which the audience starts responding in the affirmative. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, he says to the audience, no, the facts are against you. And that <laughs> um, divorce rates have risen because women have left the sphere of being mother and wife. Um, at this point, Roblin has to again turn to the audience and ask them to stop interrupting him because they keep shouting no at his arguments. <laughs> <laughs> that is some bullheaded stubbornness to be like, there is a horde of people telling me I am wrong. <laughs> Like, and I will just, not back down. <laughs> There's an article detailing the whole thing, and a bunch of things are just like, cries of no are heard from the audience. <laughs> Man, I wish you could just go do that now, and just every time someone in government says, like, you know, you just go, no! Well, you and I did get uh, scolded once for laughing in a session of city council. Yeah, and my best friend did once get kicked out of the legislature for heckling someone. <laughs> <laughs> so it is still a thing you can do. Yeah. Um, he claims that his wife is bitterly opposed to suffrage. He also says it is the home where influence is felt and exercised, and that the mother uh, and the mother that cannot exercise influence upon her own husband and her own children is a woman that should not be permitted to exercise it on the outside. <laughs> so. This is a very weird argument because basically what he's saying is, oh, yes, we want and like welcome women's influence and they do influence how their husbands vote. We just don't want them to actually vote. Huh. Right? Yeah, it's strange. I mean, like gender politics at the time were also very strange. Like, yes. To be clear, when Roblin is talking about like women being in the home, there is this whole idea of like separate spheres for men and women where women influence domestic life and men influence the public. Yeah. And those two should not mix by no. any means. And of course, the idea of those two separate spheres, spheres is very silly. I mean, of course, politics affects what happens in the home. And of course, women will in some way or another impact what's going on elsewhere. <laughs> And women are inside of the home already. They're working. They're buying stuff. They have, yeah. <laughs> they're living in society and therefore they are influencing things. Yes. Um, not according to Roblin though. He also says that uh, women basically don't want the vote. He says I'm that- I'm going to start yelling no at you. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> he says that good women shrunk away from the polls and that- in um, places in the United States where they had tried giving the women the vote, they found that women simply just didn't want it. <laughs> hmm. Um, there had also been earlier in these speeches some accusation of corruption in politics. Um, <laughs> Roblin says, there's nothing corrupt in politics. The audience begins <laughs> laughing. And he says, this is not a subject for laughter. <laughs> oh no. In case no one's familiar with Roblin, um, he did steal a bunch of money from the government. He's in not a, a good guy. construction scandal. <laughs> like that was actively going on in 1914. Oh, this yeah. was the midst of the construction scandal. That's really funny because he has like a paragraph where he's talking about how like he's never seen corruption. Not a single person is corrupt in his legislature. Meanwhile, he's like, here, contractor Thomas Kelly, please look at the bids for the project. And Weird. if you bid lower, we'll work out a deal. <laughs> um, so in the end, he declares himself absolutely opposed to women's suffrage because he simply has too much regard for women. Mm -hmm. And the vote would undermine home life. 
Um, he says, any civilization which has produced the noble women I see before me um, is good enough for me. Gentle women, queen of the home, set apart by her great function of motherhood. And you say women are the equal of men. Uh, and McClung says, he paused here dramatically, blowing himself up like a balloon and shouted at us. <laughs> I tell you, you are wrong. You do your sex an injustice, which I shall not allow to pass unchallenged. Women are superior to men now and always. So that's Roblin's response. Yeah. He's a ridiculous man. And Nellie McClung, while he's speaking and without taking notes, strains to remember his tone of voice, his diction, his hand gestures, and so on, because she is basically planning on performing that speech the next night. <laughs> so she says she observed um, the way he caught his thumbs in the armhole of his coat, uh, the way he teetered back on his heels and twiddled his little fingers. All the ways he goofed up. Yeah. <laughs> She's on him. So basically yeah she like she doesn't have a written speech for the next night where she's going to play premiere she's written that right now <laughs> which i love oh, that's so good <laughs> yeah and like brave also um so the next day the tribune says that the premier was hopeless in discussion in discussion with the able woman advocates of suffrage extension and that his old-fashioned theories were exploded. Uh, they also say that none of the members of the legislature uh, want to talk to them about it. Because <laughs> it was and, embarrassing? Um, and that they were generally non-committal and hurried away if the suggestion were made that their opinions might be quoted, as if one were handing them a red-hot coal. <laughs> so I think it's becoming obvious here that... Um, being a politician who publicly opposes suffrage is maybe becoming not the smartest move. Yeah. So the next night we've got the show itself. So um, it is at the Walker Theater. So the Walker Theater is what today, Sabrina? The Burton Cummings Theater. Yes. Have you been to the Burton Cummings for shows? Multiple times. I ripped my pants on a nail on the back of the seats once. And I went to my first adult concert there. I saw the Arctic Monkeys. Oh, fun. I think I saw John Mulaney at, at the Burton Cummings. I also saw John Mulaney at the Burton Cummings. Did we go to the same show and not oh. talk about it? <laughs> I, we were I friends when that happened. You. No. <laughs> That's funny. I, I went with Alex, so. I went with my ex. So. <laughs> <laughs> How did we not talk about this? I don't know. It's really weird. Okay, so we both saw John Mulaney at, <laughs> at the Burt, which, um, yeah, back then was the Walker. It's a really interesting building, actually. I think they've replaced the seats now, maybe, but it used to be almost like pews in there. Mm -hmm. um, so it begins with a number of suffrage songs, which are performed by the Assiniboine Quartet. Um, a petition is being passed around uh, in favor of suffrage. Um, and pamphlets are being sold called The Legal Status of Women in Manitoba, which was written by Dr. Mary Crawford. Okay. Um, they then begin with, not the mock parliament right away, but with a one-act play called How the Vote Was Won. So this is a play written by Cicely Hamilton, which was first put on in London, England by the National Women's Social and Political Union. Sabrina, are you they up for it like- on in London. What? When did they put it on in London out of curiosity? Oh, good question. It's it's slightly older, I feel. I think it might be originally from the 1890s. 
Oh, interesting. But I, I'd, I can't say that for sure. Sabrina, are you up for a short dramatic reading of how sure. the vote was won? Hang on, I will send you the file. Okay, do you want to be Horace or Agatha? I would like to be Horace. Okay. Thank you for making me feel like I'm in the middle of English class about <laughs> 10 years ago. Okay, so um, what we've got here is uh, we're sort of halfway through the play. Um, Horace is um, basically like a clerk of some kind who lives with his wife and uh, a maid and a cook, I believe. And his hired help have just left. And now his sister Agatha has showed up out of nowhere. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Now, Agatha, what does this mean? Surely in your position, it was very unwise to leave the Lewises. You can't stay here. We must make some arrangement. Any arrangement you like, dear, provided you support me. I support you. As my nearest male relative, I think you are obliged to do so. If you refuse, I must go to the workhouse. But why can't you support yourself? You've done it for years. Yes, ever since I was 18. Now I'm going to give up work until my work is recognized. Either my proper place is the home, the home provided for by some dear father, brother, husband, cousin, or uncle, or I am a self-supporting member of the state who ought not to be shut out from the rights of citizenship. All of this sounds as if you would become a suffragette. Oh, Agatha, I had always thought you were a lady. <laughs> yes, I was a lady. Such a lady that at 18, I was thrown upon the world, penniless, with no training whatever, which fitted me to earn my own living. When women become citizens, I believe that, that daughters will be given the same chances as sons, and such a life as mine will be impossible. Women are so illogical. What on earth has all this to do with planting yourself on me in this inconsiderate way? You put me in a most unpleasant position. You must see, Agatha, that I haven't the means to support a sister as well as a wife. Couldn't you go to some friends until you find another situation? No, Horace. I'm going to stay with you. Oh, indeed. And for how long, if I may ask? Until the bill for the removal of the sex disability is passed. So that's our, our short excerpt there. Um, so this is the first of many such relatives who show up at Horace's home throughout uh, the course of this play. Oh, no. So basically, women all go on strike, leaving their jobs, which, of course, men have been telling them for years are unladylike, and they go to their nearest male relatives, demanding that they support them as their proper place is the home. <laughs> uh, while women without a male relative go to the workhouse. Um, and so over the course of the play, more and more like extended female relatives show up demanding that Horace support them. At some point he becomes so annoyed, he says he's leaving and going to the theater. At which point he learns that of course the actresses have also gone on strike and the theaters are closed. <laughs> so at that point, Horace changes his mind and becomes an ardent suffragist himself. To Just get... to get his dang family out of his house. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So um, this is the play that they begin with. Um, and this, this seems to have been performed in a, a few different places, actually, like in Canada and the UK as well. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and for this performance of it, they had changed like all the place names and stuff to be spots in Winnipeg. Oh, fun. I yeah. love to do that. <laughs> um, so there's then an intermission in which there's some violin music. And then it is time for the actual mock parliament. So 
Um, this description I've kind of cobbled together based on a number of different accounts and done my best here. So Nellie McClung appears in front of the curtains, which haven't been drawn yet. The audience recognizes her immediately and burst into applause. Uh, many would have heard her speak the day before or read about her speech in the papers. She tells the audience that they are about to witness a reversion of the usual political situation, uh, showing women in power in the legislature, and she urges them to use their imaginations. So the curtain rises and the parliament begins. Um, the stage is set up with chairs on either sides, um, kind of facing each other, as well as a spot uh, for the speaker in the middle. So uh, just as in the real parliament. Um, so we've got Nellie McClung as the prime minister. We also have W.C. Perry, A.B. Thomas, Mary Crawford, Mrs. Lipset Skinner, and C.P. Walker uh, all in there, uh, as well as a number of other people. And rather than as like a scripted play, it is really run as like, a, a kind of version of parliament for the first few minutes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I think there was probably, you know, some kind of loose scripting, but it's more like they're doing kind of like the routine comings and goings. So there's people presenting petitions, motions mm -hmm. being offered. And uh, yeah, as one paper says, routine proceedings were adhered to as much as possible. Um, the first petition is about men's clothes. This is oh. from the Society for the Prevention of Ugliness, <laughs> uh, saying that men wearing scarlet ties, six inch collars and squeaky shoes should not be allowed in public. <laughs> uh, the next petition is um, asking for labor saving devices for men. Uh, the government representative speaks against this bill saying, if men were allowed any leisure, the first thing you know, they would be educating themselves. <laughs> we can't have that yeah so we should i should mention if you if you didn't quite get it from the cast list there or or nelly's um introduction that all of the government members here are women um the third asked that all harmful substances be prohibited in laundry soap as it was ruining men's delicate hands <laughs> um, there is then a bill presented to confer dower rights on married men. Um, the um, attorney general who's cast um, in responding to this bill says that she is keen on men. Possibly she kept them on a pedestal. In any case, she shelved them. <laughs> <laughs> Which I like. Um, and then turns down the bill. Uh, there is a measure to confer upon fathers equal guardianship rights with women. Interesting. Um, and then at the climax of the piece, a delegation of men come with a wheelbarrow full of petitions asking for votes for men. Now, they present their petition. And as Nellie McClung begins to speak as the premier, the audience immediately recognizes her speech as a parody of Roblin's The Previous Day. <laughs> and begin to laugh. So she says, Get him, Nelly. Yeah. <laughs> she says, I praise the delegation for their manly beauty. <laughs> Singling out the leader, Robert Skinner, as a type of manhood unexcelled. 
So she says, it gives me great pleasure to receive you here tonight. Uh, she compliments the delegation on their gentlemanly appearance. She says, if without exercising the vote, such specimens of manhood can be produced, such a, such a system of affairs should not be interfered with. Any system of civilization that can produce such splendid specimens of manhood as Mr. Skinner is good enough for me. And if it is good enough for me, it is good enough for anybody. <laughs> so if you were play paying close attention, you might recognize that as like almost word for word what Roblin had said the previous night. <laughs> With the addition at the end of like, if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for anyone. She says, if all men were as intelligent as these representatives of the downtrodden sex seem to be, it might not do any harm to give them the vote. But all men are not intelligent. <laughs> she says, there is no use giving men votes. They wouldn't use them. Why, they say in Toronto after the last election, the streets were filled with such mountains of unused votes that they endangered the lives of the women and children. <laughs> Then again, then again, some men would vote too much and they would just hang around the polls until the next election and stop working. <laughs> she says good men shrink from the polls like a pestilence. <laughs> Politics unsettle men and unsettled men lead to unsettled bills, which lead to broken furniture, broken vows and divorce. <laughs> says the modesty of our men, which we reverence, forbids us giving them the vote. Man's place is on the farm. <laughs> so as the, that's uh, kind of her speech there. And as the show ends, McClung is presented with a bouquet of roses, which are rumored to be a gift from two members of the opposition who had apparently snuck away from an official dinner to be there. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. So, um, the response, obviously, the audience loves it. Um, it was a packed house. Um, but maybe more surprisingly, the local newspapers rave about it, too. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like all of them do, which is surprising because, you know, they do kind of run the, the gamut of politics. Yeah. Um, but as as McClung had mentioned, you know, they had a lot of women working at newspapers at this point as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So the Tribune... Uh, says that smiles of anticipation, ripples of merriment, gales of laughter, and storms of applause punctuated every point and paragraph of what is unanimously conceded to be the best burlesque ever staged in Winnipeg. However, that's on page eight. Um, on page one is the Tribune Trumps. Uh, oh boy. These include, the mock parliament looked real pretty last night. <laughs> No. I got I got really mad when I started reading these. Uh, the Tribune Trumps. Yeah. I'm guessing this part was not written by a woman. Um, no. Fortunately, no miscreant let a mouse loose on the stage of the walker last evening. <laughs> now, this sounds like a teenager on Twitter who's like, oh, women are scared of mice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And... This one, this one annoys me the most. We wouldn't half mind being brought before the bar of, at the house. Okay, let me start that one again. We wouldn't half mind being brought before the bar of the house at the walker. <sighs> what, like, weird teenage boy wrote that? I don't know. Who's responsible for this? 
whose response is like, oh, women, they're pretty. <laughs> These women want civil rights, but they're hot. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't understand and I cannot accept both. <laughs> you can be hot or have rights. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, none of the Tribune Trumps are like, women shouldn't vote. They're all just kind of patronizing like that. Okay, but also, like, the Tribune Trumps is just a section at the front of the paper that's, like, quips about the events of the day or the week, and they're all patronizing. They're all, it's true. <laughs> but I was annoyed that that was on page one, and then it wasn't until, like, page eight that you get the actual thing. Yeah. Um, the Manitoba Free Press, so that's the Winnipeg Free Press today, says, women score in drama and debate, and to say that everyone was delighted is to put it mildly. Um, but McClung is especially pleased that the Telegram, which she calls the government newspaper, so it was generally <laughs> conservative, yeah. uh, reviews it well. So they say it was highly enjoyable, and from the standpoint of an entertainment, it was excellent, and few burlesques or light comedy productions have ever met with a heartier response than last night's burlesque on the system of government as it exists today. So it's a burlesque in that women are dressing as men, right? That's the Is that the gimmick? <sighs> yeah, I guess- a burlesque? I don't know the, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look more into like, what was the meaning of burlesque at that point? Um, I think they just mean it in the sense of like a comedic show. I don't know. It's, I guess subver subverting something. Yeah. Maybe? Like a satire, a satire yeah. maybe. I don't know. Cause it's not a bunch of women doing government is not what I think of when I think burlesque. <laughs> no, I mean, it has a very different meaning today when we say yeah. burlesque. I think they just mean like, a dramatic, like a theatrical satire, essentially. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they say that if last night's production is any indication uh, of the success it might meet, that basically uh, the cause of woman may not be so hopeless after all. Um, and that even from the standpoint of the anti-suffragist, the entertainment was highly enjoyable. The satire and sarcasm of the whole business being too good to miss. Huh. That's yeah. a glowing review from a paper that is abhorrently conservative for much of its run yes yeah so is and like generally aligned with the conservative anti-suffrage government at that point yeah um the play also had sold out 1800 seats at around 25 to 50 cents a seat it also played again later in the year as well as in brandon at least once oh wow yeah so basically um it's a huge financial success and the uh -huh. show essentially gives the Political Equality League the money they needed to properly pursue suffrage, like to oh. kind of do a bunch yeah. of, of lobbying in advance of the upcoming election. Um, the other thing, maybe even more important than that, was that it kind of made suffrage cool. Yeah. Right? This was like the kind of theatrical event um, that everyone was talking about. Yeah, I mean, nothing is more fun than poking fun at political leaders. I feel like yeah. it's always a hit. Yeah, and I think maybe you don't want to be the side of, like, uh, I didn't like the satire, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So it kind and of makes suffrage fashionable and more popular. Um, so Beatrice Brigden, who went on to become um, a politician in her own right, was in the audience and talked in the 70s about how what she remembers is not even what was said, but just like the laughter and how much people loved it. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said, too, for like humor as a political tool. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I think it does kind of like weaken your opposition when you're able to laugh at them, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and some people actually attribute the influence of the mock parliament with helping to push Roblin out of power. Um, so there were, of course, a, a number of things that brought that on, not least of which was the parliamentary or the, the legislative building scandal. But uh, certainly this didn't help, um, didn't help him and, um, you know, helped to push in a new government that was running on a suffrage ticket. Mm -hmm. So in 1916, not very long afterwards, right, women get the right to vote provincially in Manitoba. Um, that's the per first province in Canada to give women that right. Um, in 1917, some women who are relatives of active soldiers in World War I are able to vote. And on January 1st, 1919 is when women and men are both enfranchised federally. It, oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, that being said, though, a lot of those exclusions we mentioned at the beginning still stand. Um, yeah. So, for instance, in terms of Indigenous people, in terms of people of, like, Chinese, Japanese, or South Asian backgrounds, um, prison inmates and people in asylums in particular, those are exclusions that were removed within the last, like, 10, 20 years. Oh, wow. So this is maybe a good time to talk a little bit about Nellie McClung and how suffrage could be exclusionary. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we have to get into it at some point. <laughs> we do have to get into it. So we're talking about Nellie McClung specifically here. Um, partly just I can't read the work of every single suffragette. <laughs> and I feel like Nellie McClung is also maybe the most well-known of like Manitoba suffragettes. That's what I would say. I think especially her name is the one that has lasted. Yeah. Right? Um, so she's going to be kind of representative here of, of suffrage, but any one of the other women we've mentioned could be also, a, you know, the subject of their own episode. Um, and yeah, people who are familiar with Manitoba history or Canadian history in any sense have probably heard um, less than nice things about Nellie McClung. Yeah. So we're going to get into that. So, um, yeah, this was a tough one to research because I have such mixed feelings about Nellie McClung. And you've, you've <laughs> heard me rant about this quite a bit already. Yes, you have. Part of the issue is that she's just a great writer. Um, and I have to imagine like a great speaker as well, which is probably why she did so good for this cause. Yeah. Um, now, what's what's nice is that we have a lot of her thoughts in her own words, which as a historian is also great, is always mm -hmm. great. And also she's just like fun to read. Um, so, like, even in areas like Prohibition, where I don't agree with her, I find her style to be really just, like, entertaining and witty. Yeah, I mean, she wouldn't have gotten as far as she did if she weren't able to communicate. Yeah. so In that, in, like, specific way. Yes, yeah, totally. So, case in point, um, a chapter in her book, Times Like These, which is probably her most problematic book, <laughs> oh, is, entitled, is entitled, What Do Women Think of War? Not That It Matters. <laughs> <laughs> another is entitled should women think so <laughs> love Nellie's writing um some real weird opinions though um I'm not going to do a whole kind of history of her but those are certainly available if people want to read them yeah um but briefly she was born and raised in rural Manitoba so native Manitoban became a teacher until she got married so married women at this point couldn't teach by the way um sensible rule uh, 
<laughs> just how does anyone keep track of gender roles? <laughs> right? Have a job. It's, don't have a job. Get married, but then don't work. I don't know. It's exhausting. Yeah. Um. So she married Robert Wesley McClung. And what's really interesting and what I love about this is that one of the reasons she married her husband is that she loved his mom. <laughs> There's a really funny quote from her about like when she met Wes about like the first thing that she says is like how cool she thought his mom was. <laughs> and like she thought that he must have, she must have raised a good son because she was so neat. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, so she kind of joins um, joins forces with this woman. Um, and McClung was a maternal feminist. So mm -hmm. maternal feminists believed that women ought to be involved in decision-making on things like healthcare, schooling, and so on, because women naturally had expertise in these areas. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not crazy, right? I, I think to some extent that's that's correct. Women ought to have a seat at the table in all things, but especially in areas where they have experience and a vested interest. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, the parallel I might draw today is that, you know, we often say that women ought to have more of a say when it comes to like reproductive health. Yeah. Um, I do also find, though, that it's quite hard to know what Nellie McClung really believed, because I think she was also quite canny politically. She herself doesn't seem to have been, like, all that interested in motherhood. Like, she, mm. like she loved her kids, no, no doubt about that, but pretty frequently was, you know, leaving them behind with nannies to yeah. go on speaking tours and stuff. Like, it wasn't the number one most important thing in her life, which is mm. fine. But it might be that she saw that this was the kind of feminism that the world was in a place to accept at this point. Yeah, I think couching your argument in current social norms yeah. is a way to like help win your cause as like as bad as it is, still so be like women's place is the home. Yeah, like, exactly. That's the argument. It's like women's place is the home and that therefore they should have a say on things that impact the home, right? Yeah, like, okay, if I agreed, like if I agree to you with you to that extent, then logically I ought to have a say in what happens in the home. Yeah. Um but the other thing is that there's also kind of a dark side to maternal feminism, which is eugenics. Oh boy. Oh no, Nellie. Um so McClung and women like her believed in the importance of motherhood and in the role of mothers in creating and raising the next generation. They really put this role of motherhood on up, up on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. um, and because they believed that motherhood was so very important in kind of the future of humanity, they also often advocated for its restriction. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. So eugenics can mean a lot of things. Um, specifically in the case of Nellie McClung, though, she believed that people who were, as she termed at the time, mentally defective ought to be sterilized. <sighs> yeah. So it's not good. Um, so she had influence in a lot of really positive ways that we've already seen. But she also supported um, pretty explicitly Alberta's Sexual Sterilization Act which led to the forced sterilization of thousands of people between 1928 and 1972. That's, uh, that's really recent, 1972. Yeah. That's a lot of people who were negatively impacted by that in, in irreversible ways. Um, and it often, I would say, impacted people of, like, minority groups. 
more than say people who had a similar background to Nellie McClung. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't think that that was McClung's express intention, but like, so one of the intention versus impact matter in this case though. Right. So like one of the things I do want to note is like, uh, eugenics was a really popular idea in the early 20th century. Um, it wasn't just Nellie McClung. It wasn't just her suffragette friends. Um, and like, I kind of said this in our, in our fascism episode, but like, it's really easy for us to look back at these ideas and be like, well, obviously that's horrible. And it can only lead to atrocities, right? Like we live in a post Holocaust world where we've seen the logical end to these things. And I have to imagine it would have been impossible to imagine that kind of result. But that being said, like you do need to take some responsibility. You need to think about possible negative consequences of your ideology. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's that's incumbent upon you when you yeah. buy into an ideology that will affect other people. But and I mean, also, it's also, also around the same sterilization is just like gross to begin with. Like there's no extent of that to which it's like, okay, right? No, absolutely not. But I feel like also when you look at the ideas towards stuff like race and mental health in, say, 1914, if you're looking at, like, textbooks at the time, there's still these ideas of, like, people of different races having, like, misformed skulls. Yeah. Weird trees of, like, the ideal race and the lesser races. So all of this sort of compounds to form ideologies like McClung's. Yeah, yeah, totally. And like I say, let's not only hold Nellie McClung responsible for that. Um, I do think there tends to be a, a bit of a weird double standard here where there's been a lot of talk about suffrage eugenics and not about like men with eugenic ideologies in Canadian history. <laughs> yeah, so that's fair. Tommy Douglas, who we voted greatest Canadian, his master's thesis was called Problems of the Subnormal Family. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> Not great. He later disavowed eugenics, to be fair, but still. Um, J.S. Woodsworth, who f- who was one of the kind of founders of the precursor to the NDP, super important Winnipeg figure, wrote about the degeneration of our Canadian people as a result of poor immigrants. Ugh. Yeah. So <clears throat> the other thing is, like, I was... Yeah, I was really ready to tear Nellie McClung down for her views on this, and I still am in a lot of ways. But I I think what I found in reading her was something maybe a little more complicated than what I expected. So I I describe Nellie McClung as being like almost like a utopian in some ways, like very kind of anti-fatalist. She opposes things like war. Um, Again, though, opposes war in kind of a weird way. She says... War takes the fit and leaves the unfit. The epileptic, the Uh. consumptive, the inebriate are left behind. They are not good enough to go out to fight, so they stay at home and perpetuate the race. The bitterest cost of war is not paid by us at at all. It will be paid by the unborn generations in a lowered vitality, the loss of a strong fatherhood, which they have never known. And then she also says, Napoleon lowered the stature of the French by two inches, it is said. (laughs) Okay. I'm pretty sure that's not true. <laughs> also a weird thing to sort of throw in there. Yeah. So again, it's like, I'm like, oh, okay, we're opposing like wars for no reason. I'm on your side. And then it's something weird. And that's a lot of what I got reading Nellie McClung. Great. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so here's a pretty blatantly eugenicist paragraph here. She says, a young man and a young woman say, I believe we'll get married, and forthwith they do. The state sanctions it, and the church blesses it. They may be consumptive, epileptic, shiftless, immoral, or with a tendency to insanity. No matter. They may go on and reproduce their kind. They are perfectly free to bring children into the world, who are a burden and a menace to society. Society has to bear it all. Be fruitful and multiply, declares the church, as it deplores the evils of race suicide. So, not There's great. a lot going on in that. There's, yes. Because also, it, I don't, I know people with epilepsy, and I don't think I'd call them a burden on society. Uh, and also, I love that it's like, here are medical conditions. Also, what if they're immoral? That's a good point, and I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that we're kind of lumping in all these things all at once, right? Like, any argument for any one of those individual things is bad, but lumping them all together is actually especially strange. Yeah, and the other thing is, as I continued reading through her kind of views on eugenics, I, I came to feel that what it might partly be is like a horribly misguided attempt at something like family planning. And even, <laughs> oh no, even like almost like women's liberation, but in a really, <laughs> in a really stupid <laughs> way. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. I mean, I guess we're talking about a time that's kind of like pre actual practical birth control, right? Yeah. So, like, here's one of her quotes that made me feel that way. She says, by all means, let us have more babies, says the bishop, even if they are anemic and rickety, ill-nourished and deformed, and even if the mothers, already overburdened and underfed, die in giving them birth. To the average thinking woman, this wail for large families, coming as it always does for men, is rather nauseating. Yeah, so I agree with the last part where we should help mothers who are maybe overburdened with children and also better maternity care practices. Yeah, and that also it would maybe be nice to, like, I think we're looking at a context here where, like, the church and the government is telling women to have more babies. And I think part of what she's saying is it's okay for women not to have more babies and just to take care of the ones they have. But then also that we should take that into our own hands and then make yes. women stop having babies, which yes. is where it and gets real gross. <laughs> that part is really bad. Yeah. And so a lot of her quotes are like that, where like half of them is kind of is is fine. And then the other half, you're like, whoa, where did you you took that idea somewhere else? <laughs> so another example, the most common quote I found when articles talk about McClung's eugenics is this one here. So this is pretty gross. Um, to bring children into the world suffering from the handicaps caused by the ignorance, poverty, or criminality of the parents is an appalling crime against the innocent and helpless, and yet <sighs> one about which practically nothing is said. Marriage, homemaking, and the rearing of, of children are left entirely to chance. And so it is no wonder that humanity produces so many specimens who, if they were silk stockings or boots, would be marked seconds. Ooh, don't mm. call human beings seconds. No, please nope. don't. But then, so that quote leaves out a previous bit where she says, it does not seem to the thoughtful observer that we need more children nearly so much as we need better children and a higher value set upon all human life. So it's- Oh. Yeah. 
so it's this odd dichotomy where she's saying kind of like, we need to take better care of the children we have and allow women not to have so many children. But again, you're right. We're taking that into our own hands and deciding who ought to have children instead of thinking about maybe there are ways that we can allow women to, to make those decisions, right? Yeah. And so case in point, I was like feeling really mixed about a lot of this. But in her book, The Stream Runs Fast, McClung talks about how, so this is supposedly a true story. She talks about how a woman brought to her her 18-year-old daughter, Katie, who was, um, in her words, not quite normal um, and had uh, okay. not been able to get past third grade and who was about to marry a man 10 years her senior who was also, quote, not quite right. Hmm. So what do you think... Nellie's um solution to this problem is I'm assuming it's going to be forced sterilization it is arranges for Katie to be sterilized um so it's it's very unclear in this story if Katie is a willing participant in this like she basically she basically doesn't have a voice yeah it's the mother and Nellie McClung conspiring exactly essentially right there's this bit where she's kind of in the doctor's office and like the dad doesn't want it to happen and it seems like the daughter is kind of going along with it but there's never any point at which the daughter is like yes I think this is a good idea or what is happening to me specifically here right right especially if she has you know the whatever a third grade level of functioning does she understand what's happening Mm -hmm. um yeah now I don't know that that actually happened (laughs) that story (laughs) Some bits of it read to me like fiction more than truth, but either way, like that, that is what she sees as being the way to deal with a situation like that is super troubling. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so basically I don't know what to make of Nellie McClung in any way, shape or form. <laughs> I mean, I think the tough part of people like McClung is that when you're building like a national history, you have to set these heroes up, right? You need to have like the woman who gave women the right to vote. Yeah. And then the issue would, then you would sort of ignore that, like, everyone is a complicated person. Yeah. And and then the moment we're like, wait a minute, she had bad ideas. The whole, like, pedestal she's on comes crumbling apart, right? Yeah. So it'd be nice if we can just do both to begin with, right? We can be like, oh, man, she was, like, super funny and amazing writer and also had a lot of really dumb bad ideas. Yeah, I think going into this with the idea that people are complicated and have troubling opinions. Yeah. Is um, probably the healthier way to do this. Yeah. Now, to the matter of, like, kind of away from eugenics, but into the matter of, like, racism among suffragettes, I do actually think Nellie McClung is often lumped into this kind of, like, racist suffragettes trope. And I actually think that that is un- expressly unfair to her. Oh, interesting. So I wasn't, I mean, I haven't read everything she's ever written, but I, I couldn't find much that came across as all that troubling to me in that way. Um, A couple of quotes from her. She says, among the people of the world in the years to come, we will ask no greater heritage for our country than to be known as the land of the fair deal, where every race, color, and creed will be given exactly the same chance, where no person can exert influence to bring about his personal ends, where no man or woman's past can ever rise up to defeat them, where no crime goes unpunished, where every debt is paid, where no prejudice is allowed to masquerade as reason, where honest toil will ensure an honest living, where the man who works receives the labor or the reward of his labor. 
Um, there's also another quote where she um, addresses that some people have argued that, oh, letting foreign women vote could be an issue. And she says, absolutely not. Um, she says, in our blind egotism, we class our foreign people as ignorant people and they do not know our ways and our language. They may know many other languages, but if they have not yet mastered ours, they are poor, ignorant foreigners. We Anglo-Saxon people have a decided sense of our own superiority. And we feel sure that our skin is exactly the right color. And we people feel sure that we were born in the right place too. So we naturally look down upon those who happen to be of a different race and tongue than our own. So she actually does in a lot of these cases, like take down these kind of racist things. Yeah, that seems fairly critical. Yeah. I guess you can, re you can read racism into stuff like the weakening of the Canadian race or people with like a moral yes. traits or whatever, right? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're probably right. I think there probably is some kind of unexplored racism there, but she isn't, she isn't kind of explicitly racist in that way. That's a low bar. <laughs> yeah. And I think like McClung was probably just racist in the way many people were, which is subtly and nefariously in a way that they're not aware of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also like putting Nellie McClung's personal views aside, the women's suffrage movement was like at its core, often ex explicitly racist. Like there were other suffragists who, where it's like not a matter of gray. Yeah, I mean, there is some like rhetoric I had heard from others where yes. it was like, we have to clean the country up because immigrant men are making a mess of it. Yeah, so there's some, there's some definitely much grosser quotes um, in the US in particular. One of the arguments of suffragettes was that it was unfair that black men could vote and white women could not. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, it's also a super like classist movement um, dealt pretty much exclusively with the concerns of like middle white class women, right? So I think, yeah. wait, <laughs> middle class white women is what I meant to come out of my mouth there. <laughs> um, so yeah, even when it's not explicitly racist, it's certainly an exclusionary movement in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Uh, like, I don't think any of the women I've mentioned in this episode have been women of color. No. Off the top there of my head. We also don't see a lot of working class women. No, there was an interesting article I stumbled across and then sent to you that implied that working class women in Winnipeg, specifically like Jewish working class women, may have been less concerned with the vote and more concerned with like more day to day matters. Yeah. So that's what I was just going to bring up. But I think part of the exclusionary nature is just that like, yeah, for a lot of women, voting was not the most important thing to them. Like, voting is great, but if I'm working 12-hour days, I'm probably not going to make it to the polls anyway. And also, like, realistically, you can vote, but then what? Yeah, like, yeah. What like, happens if, if I, the party you vote in doesn't bring about tangible change? They're right, not like, the one that's going to, like, put can, food on the table. If I can vote, but, like, my views or my cultural background are not represented by any politicians... Yeah, that's not going to make a tangible difference in my life. Yeah. And politics takes time that some of these people probably didn't have. That's true, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, like, in particular, in the context of Manitoba, and this is pretty common to just about any reformary era ideology here, Indigenous people are basically treated as if they don't exist. Yeah. Well, it took until, what, 1962, 63, before any Indigenous person could vote? I believe it was 1960, so yeah. 
It's uh, not great. Way too long. Way too it's long. It's gross, guys. And I believe 1948 for uh, a lot of people people from Asian backgrounds. So, <laughs> so that's the story of the vote in Manitoba. <laughs> there some are so many was, problems. Some of it was really fun and then it got gross and bad. <laughs> I'm glad you set it up. So we had like a fun little laugh for the first bit. <laughs> and then it was just us going like, well... Well, I guess some problems. of that was bad and some of it was okay. <laughs> um, I had originally written it the opposite way where we talked about eugenics first. And then I was like, no, I can't pivot from that into the mock <laughs> parliament. <laughs> so there are some real flaws, but do you want to hear about the really funny goof Nellie McClung did on the premiere <laughs> that one time? I also thought we'd have a harder time laughing at her fun satire. <laughs> we were like, yeah, but remember the time she said that thing about people being seconds though? <laughs> <laughs> Remember when she thought people should be sterilized? Ugh. <laughs> uh. So that's the vote in Manitoba, and yeah, our thoughts on that are, oh. Actually, my thoughts on that are, whoa, Nelly. Oh no, Sabrina. <laughs> I told you, I told you you could have one, and you waited. And I used it. You saved it. I sat on it. I was All hoping right. that you would think I forgot that I threatened to say this to you. And I, I would did, trick you. I did forget. <laughs> <laughs> it's right, a bad so joke. Do you want to tell people where they can find us? Yeah, so you can check out more about the Muff Parliament and women's right to vote in all of Alex's fun sources for the episode at onegreathistory.wordpress.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at onegreathistory, and we are on Twitter at the number one great history. Thanks, Thanks for, listening. for listening.